And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I, per I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us celebrate and eat, or eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Thank you very much. All right. I will pray for us real quick, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for your word and the ability to come before you. Give me the words that you want me to say tonight and uh, be with us as we uh, approach you humbly tonight. In your name, amen. I am glad that John got uh, took care of all of the difficult subjects ahead of time. It makes my life a lot easier um, with the kids. Anyway. Um, as John said, we are continuing with our series, What Christians Do, and the subject that I get to talk about is reconciliation. Uh, last week, John talked about forgiveness, and so I think the logical move is to talk about reconciliation next, which makes a lot of sense to me. I think, first of all, I probably want to make a bit of a differentiation or tell the difference between what forgiveness is and what reconciliation is, because there probably is a little bit of a tendency to blend them together, but they do go hand in hand. So forgiveness, and this is according to some psychologists, and John told us about this last week, but I'm reminding you because that was a week ago. Psychologists will define it, forgiveness as a conscious or deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or a group that's harmed you, regardless of whether or not they deserve your forgiveness. In reconciliation, I would say, is bringing together two parties that actually don't agree with each other or are at odds. It could be considered like bringing together two parties that are, that are at war or that don't agree with each other anymore. So it really is the bringing together of people that are in disagreement or there's something that's broken there. The idea of reconciliation plays a really big role in the entirety of the story of the Bible. And one of the most famous stories of forgiveness and reconciliation is the one that we just read, the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is a parable, and the parables that Jesus told in his ministry were always pointing to a greater truth than the story itself. The context of this parable will tell us a little bit more about what we're looking at. So in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, we get to know who the audience of Jesus is, which will tell us who the parable is about. And it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So you have Jesus who is eating and going around and having these feasts with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes are looking onward as this happens. And they're all kind of present in the moment. And all of them, including Jesus, will play a role in the parable of the prodigal son that we're going to talk about. But there are three parables in Luke 15 that Jesus mentions, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about those parables to give you even more context for this one. The first parable that he tells is of a shepherd who loses one sheep out of 99 and goes after and finds it. When he does find that sheep, he brings it back and he rejoices. The second parable is of a woman who has 10 coins, but she loses one. And so she spends the entire night looking for this lost coin. She searches her whole house. She finds the coin and then ends up rejoicing. And the third, of course, is the prodigal son, where you have a father with two sons, and he loses one of his sons. Son comes back. Father rejoices. So you see some kind of patterns that are starting to emerge here with each one of these parables. Interesting note is kind of the fractional shrinking of each parable. You have 99 to 1 with the sheep and the shepherd. Then you have 10 to 1 with the coins and the uh, woman. And then you have 2 to 1. So it kind of narrows as, each, as we get through each parable. And it almost kind of shows some tension that's building as we're listening to these stories. But it also... Um, becomes more personal as the numbers grow smaller. So for tonight's sermon, I have three things that I want to talk about, and they all start with R, because that's how you're supposed to do it, right? (laughs) So they are recklessness, repentance, and resentment. And I promise you, well, that also really kind of ties in, because this is on reconciliation. So four R's. Think about that. Wild. (laughs) So I'm going to read from Luke 15, and then we will talk talk about it. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when, he had been, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You've all heard this before, but why not again? The younger son leaves his father's house and lives a reckless lifestyle and he wastes the inheritance that his father gives him. When we step back and we look at the larger story of the Bible, this shouldn't really be a surprising theme. John touched on this last week. In the garden, Adam and Eve had everything that they could have wanted with God. They had perfect harmony with God. And when they were tempted by the serpent, they ate of the tree they were told to avoid, and sin entered the world. Like the younger brother, Adam and Eve wasted everything they had with their father, and thorns and thistles overtook the earth, and they were banished from the garden, and everything on earth was under a curse now. In the parable, the younger brother broke his relationship with his family. He traded it in for a reckless lifestyle, 
But when famine hits that land, he is stuck with the pigs and he wants to eat pig slop. And then he's outside of his father's house and he's stuck in despair. In the garden, Adam and Eve are both left to feel the shame of their nakedness. And they too are stuck in despair because of what they've done. In short, recklessness leads to sin. And in both stories, in both cases, recklessness led to sin. Proverbs 14, 16 says, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. All of humanity has to now deal with the repercussions of what happened in the garden. And the world was broken and is still broken and in need of repair. Paul in the book of Romans says that because of sin, humanity has an adversarial relationship with God. Humanity is like a warring country with God, and peace had been broached when the fall happened, and a restoration of friendly relations was needed. So really what he's saying is that reconciliation was needed. Because of sin, our vertical relationship with God is broken, and also the horizontal relationship that we have with all of creation and other people is broken as well and in deep need of reconciliation. There needed to be some way to deal with sin, right? And that's why the Old Testament law was established or was an attempt to deal with sin. The sacrifices that would be made in the law would continually cover God's people's sin. And unfortunately, the Bible shows that that relationship between God and his people was very rocky because Israel proved to continually and continually fail. And God proved to continually and continually work with the people of Israel, but they always turned back to the idols of the world, and they were continually failing. See, the law in and of itself was good. It was there to point out sin, but the law failed to break the curse and the sacrifices that were established in the law could only temporarily cover up over the sins of the people there, and they couldn't get rid of them. In Hebrews 10, it talks about this. It says, For since the law was a, but a shadow of the good things to come, of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there had to be another way. You see, Israel's story isn't that dissimilar from ours. If we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we commit failure after failure, yet God is still there and is patient with us. It's unfortunate that we have to live with the effects of sin in our lives because we are still sinful and the world around us is sinful. We have to live in a time in which God has set in motion a rescue plan for us but it doesn't make living in this sinful world any easier, and it doesn't make living with our sinful natures any easier. And there is definitely something to be said for understanding the depths of our own sin and our own depravity and the sinfulness of the world that we inhabit. But we kind of have to be careful because we can be burdened by the reality of how dark things are sometimes. 
and we can feel like we're required to be the ones to bear the burden of our sin, getting ourselves together before we can go to Jesus. But Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't have to have it all together to come to me. See, the tax collectors and the sinners that are mentioned in the parable, they thought they had it all together. Or not the tax collectors and sinners, sorry. They didn't have it all together, and that's why they were hanging out with Jesus. But the religious leaders definitely thought they did have it together. And that was the problem. And that's partially what he's trying to point out here. See, it's when you recognize that you don't have it all together that you can actually achieve some sort of freedom in your life. When you understand that God has grace for you, you know what it feels like to receive grace, and then you know what it actually is like to give grace. So this is kind of where we get to more practical application of what it looks like for our lives to have reconciliation in it. There are times in our own relationships with people in this church and other churches and people outside the church that feel very difficult and very tedious, right? We find ourselves in situations where we hurt each other. We find ourselves in situations where we're liable to get hurt. And for a lot of us, that's overwhelming. I know for me, it's overwhelming. I don't want to hurt someone, and I don't want to be hurt. Who does? I know from being in the lives of many of you that it's tough. And a lot of us have to deal with the fact that living in community is just such a difficult thing to do. It's not only difficult, but there's a lot of risk involved, right? I mean, anytime you take the risk of getting hurt, it's, it's scary and difficult. And that's why having a heart that is ready to forgive and reconcile is so essential if you're a Christian. And unfortunately, we often give in to our own reckless nature and our desire of our heart to just run away from that and hide from it. But that can often hurt people even more. See, we have to come to terms with the fact that if we do hurt someone, we need to reconcile. Jesus said to his disciples that people would know that they would be his disciples if they loved one another. And that same principle applies to us. People will know that we are Christians because we love each other. And so if someone hurts you, it is imperative that you quickly reconcile or try to quickly reconcile. Jesus makes this very clear. And it's funny because a lot of times people are like, man, I really just like the words of Jesus. Man, the words of Jesus are tough. They are tougher than I want them to be. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 21 he talks about this, or verse 21 through 53. He says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the judge. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's what we just talked about. On the face, those don't really sound like bad things, calling someone a fool or something. 
But I think what Jesus is really saying here is that if you hate someone, that if you have these actions that come out of you that prove that you actually hate someone, then in deep inside of your heart, it says something about your relationship with God. It says something about your relationship with other people. And there's severe punishment for those deep-seated feelings and emotions. If it's not in this life, where you have some sort of municipality or someone judging it, it's going to happen in the next. And to, to take it a step further, when we think back to the creation, we recognize that all human beings are bearers of God's image. And if you actually hate someone, you're actually directing that hate at the image of God. Jesus is taking an old commandment and he's making it about the heart. He's making it about the intent of the heart. And he's saying that anyone that would do this is not doing the right thing. He continues in chapter 5, Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Just to kind of put this in 21st century terms, Jesus is saying if you're in church and you're about to go worship and you've got something against somebody else that's a believer, go and reconcile. Just go reconcile with that person or else you could face harsher consequences. If you're in a really bad situation and you're, there's like a lawsuit, you might need to call Benny, the lawyer over there. Um, but if you're in a lawsuit, it could be the situation where you get handed over to the state and that takes care of the whole thing. And that's scary. And that'd be really scary if you lived in Jesus' time in Rome. But he's also saying that it would be hypocritical if you're looking like you're doing your religious duty of giving or doing the things that we do here, yet you hate someone at the same time. This whole portion of scripture is taking place as Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount. And most of the Sermon on the Mount, he's pointing out all the hypocrisy that is going on with the religious leaders of the time. And so it, it, it shouldn't be missed on us that if you hate someone, you're doing all the things that make you look like you're really a good Christian, man, it's not good. I'll take a drink. The second R that we have is repentance. And so I'm going to talk, uh, I'll read the prodigal son some more. In verse 17 of Luke 15, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. See, the younger son found himself in total despair, longing to eat pig food. And if you know what pigs eat, it's gross. And then realizing that even the hired servants in his fire, at his father's house aren't hungry, why am I doing this? So he comes up with a plan of action, that he will return home, that he'll humble himself, tell his dad that he's not worthy. I'm just going to become a worker. I don't need to be a son. But really what it is is that he wants to repent. See, true reconciliation requires repentance. And repentance must come from the offender. In the big picture of the story of the Bible, we were last sitting with this realization that our hearts are deeply sinful and the world is full of sin and it's sad and depressing. And we realized that the law, while it was good to point out that sin to us, never really provided a way to fully cover up that sin, only a way to temporarily patch over it. And our relationship with God and God's relationship with humanity was broken and reconciliation was needed there. See, humanity, like the younger brother, sat in a pit of despair, far from the father and not living the life that it was meant to live. So we see that God had devised a rescue plan for humanity from the very, very early stages of uh, the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. I talked about this like six years ago when we were in the old building, but it's still cool and fun to talk about. So what that is, what it's called, is called the Proto-Evangelium, which is a, in Greek means the first gospel. And it's a promise from God that from the seed of the woman would come a person to crush the head of the serpent. And also that person's heel would be bruised. Basically what it's saying is that someone would come and would take the curse that had just been unleashed on humankind and on the world and would absorb it. And this is where Jesus and his ability to completely fulfill that promise comes into the picture. All of this points to the cross and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which would provide a way for true repentance and reconciliation with God, something that the sacrifices of the law just couldn't do. And I think that's kind of what's amazing about the picture of the father in the parable. I mean, thinking about this person who was hanging out with pigs and feeding them and probably laying with them and sleeping with them, because where could he go? I mean, there's a famine in the land. He finally is just really dirty and disgusting and decides, this, this is terrible. I don't want to be here anymore. And then he goes home. But I don't know if he had time to clean up or take a shower or anything. Probably not. So he's walking home dirty and disgusting and gross with pig slop all over him. And he is rehearsing in his mind all of the things that he's going to say and do. I mean, who of us hasn't been in that situation where we're trying to approach someone that is, you know, that we've done wrong to and we're afraid. And then we go over all of the different things in our mind that we're going to say, that we're going to do, the ways that we're going to fix it. 
And if you have a long walk and a long time to think about this, it could have probably been a pretty agonizing walk. But then his father sees him, and by the time, before he knows it, he doesn't even have time to say anything to him, he is in his father's embrace. See, true repentance leads to reconciliation. But in order to understand that, we have to understand what true repentance is and what, what true repentance looks like. I know this can kind of be a scary subject. Anytime I think about repentance, I think about somebody yelling about repenting. Just repent. It can be scary to think about it sometimes, especially if you grew up in the church and you heard stuff like that a lot because that's where shame can come in. And that's where you can start to feel like, oh man, this, I feel dirty. And I'm not sure that that's where I am trying to take us right now, actually. Uh, we were, Andy and a bunch of other guys were talking last week outside of church about repentance. And Andy made a really good point. And he's, because he's the pastor, why wouldn't he? Um, but he said that when you're really repenting from something, it's not that you're running away from all of the bad stuff. It's that you're actually turning towards something that's much better than the sin that you want to commit. That's a big difference from someone saying that you're a terrible, terrible, terrible person and you're going to hell and you need to do these things or else. What it's really saying is, hey, there is an option out there for you in Jesus that you can turn to that is wonderful and fulfilling and loving. And the shame and fear-based evangelism and teaching that some of us have grown up under and has harmed a lot of people doesn't do justice to the fact that Jesus is out there with his arms stretched open wide for you to run into them. And they are not, he is not out there trying to um, push you away as some of the people that say those things would make you think. So repentance isn't based on how much shame or guilt you feel. I mean, there are times where you feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt after you've done something wrong. There are times where you don't feel any. But you, you still need to repent. And people can lay shame and guilt on you, sometimes when it's not warranted. But if it is warranted, those feelings don't necessarily, or aren't necessarily the things that should lead you to repent. It's really the desire to run into God's arms that should lead you there. You have the story of a man who leaves behind everything that is good and turns to a life of sin and then returns to his father. And that is what we see in the prodigal son. And the father accepted him back. There was reconciliation there. And this is the story of all of us to some degree. If you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus for a long time, you were once a sinner separated from God in desperate need of Jesus. And you struggle now to live in this sinful world and with a sinful nature. And you're still in need, in need of Jesus. 
If you don't know Jesus now or you know someone who doesn't know Jesus now and they don't have a relationship with the Lord, they too are sinners in need of grace. And the principle applies in both situations that everybody needs Jesus. Prior to being a Christian, you were dead and now you're alive, like the sun in the story. Ephesians says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But it also says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. In Colossians 1, 19-22, you'll see this idea of reconciliation continue to present itself. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. So what is the practical application of repentance when it comes to the idea of reconciliation? If you've done something wrong to someone, you have to repent, basically. Luke 17, 3 says, If your brother or sister sins against you, this is Jesus speaking, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. John talked about forgiveness last week, and forgiveness is often a step toward reconciliation if a relationship is broken. If forgiveness is something that the offended party needs to offer, then repentance is something that the offender must always offer if you're wanting to reconcile. We could even take it a step further and say gracious forgiveness or forgiveness that isn't warranted or isn't deserved is a good gift that ought to lead someone to repentance and then bring together that broken relationship with reconciliation. And I know a lot of you are thinking of the exceptions right now. What about this or that? I mean, our minds automatically just in our culture go, what about Hitler? You know, that's the next step. It's like, no. Okay, let's calm down. Most of the situations that we're talking about, 80%, are the day-to-day, you did wrong to me, he did wrong to me, all this, right? And then we have these larger exceptions, which we can talk about. The conversation of reconciliation and forgiveness will bring up tough situations, will bring up feelings that are not good, and I understand that. I can't claim to fully understand all of the difficulties that everyone has gone through. Um, But I think that God can promise to understand all of those situations. I do think that there may be situations where healthy boundaries need to be drawn, especially if that's in need to protect someone from violence. That kind of just makes sense or any sort of harm. So if we're we can't just say reconciliation at all costs, even if it leads to violence. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. 
And then the other thing is that just because someone is forgiven, and even if there is reconciliation, it doesn't mean that all of the external consequences that existed before then disappear. Like say someone was sentenced to prison and then someone reconciles with that person. Guys still got to go to prison. It's just how it goes. You don't lose the consequences just because reconciliation is there. If it's an interpersonal thing, it's a lot different. But if there is something that is very, very harmful, those consequences will more than likely stay. So the last R that I have is resentment. And we will read again from the prodigal son. Starting in verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, and he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he was received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you, gave, uh, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I think one of the most difficult things for us in our country in America in a very meritocratic system where merit gets you things is to wrap our heads around the idea that we come to God with nothing. That our reconciliation is not earned by us. Our reconciliation to God is not earned by us. In fact, we come to God deeply, deeply in debt. And yet Jesus offered to pay the debt that we owed that we couldn't pay ourselves. Not only that, but, but Jesus became a penalty for our debt and took the punishment that we deserved in our places and reconciled us to God through that punishment. See, the older brother in the parable cannot handle the thought that his father would throw a party for the son who did everything wrong, yet he, the one who did everything right, gets nothing, right? The, the older bro brother harbored great resentment toward his younger brother because he was the good one, right? He was the one that was in the fields all the time. Yet this guy who was sleeping around and wasted all your money and did all this, he's the one that gets the party? How does that make any sense? I feel like that also is sometimes how we can approach Christianity and Jesus. You know, there are are a couple of things that can happen the longer you become a Christian, or become a Christian, the longer you are a Christian. You can either continually be reminded of how much you need Jesus and how much you need Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Or you can start to think that because you've put in the years, because you've shown up at church every week, because you've 
handed stuff out or you've gone out and done stuff for God that God somehow owes you something, and he doesn't. It's just not the case. Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven for one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus specifically talking about the religious leaders of his time. See, that could be Christians too. That could be a lot of very religious Christians right now. Our hunger for power that controls us, the fear that we have that controls a lot of Christianity right now will do a lot more damage than any sinner can. And if we lose sight of the fact that we have to humble ourselves, then we're going to lose everything that we want. But we have to be willing to lose everything that we really want in order to get what God has for us. See, God reconciled us to him, not the other way around. The father met the son in the street. The son didn't say anything. He was just there. In 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, as ministers of reconciliation, we have the joy and honor and privilege to show people that there is something greater for them. I remember like 15-ish years ago, I was, I played in a pickup ultimate game and I was playing pickup ultimate and I got into a debate and like John over here, I used to really like to be contentious and debate and I liked to get in arguments with people and it was a pastime for me. Um, it was not good. <laughs> Just be honest with you. It was, it was painful. And I look back at myself and I go, wow, that was, that was sad. Um, so anyway, we're playing Ultimate and I get into a very strong, heated debate with someone over something trivial and dumb. And it lasts for like 20 minutes until finally... The words that I have, I just have this ability. Have you ever seen You've Got Mail when she just like says the right words and it kills Tom Hanks? Anyway, I have this ability to do something like that, I, you know, to every now and then just say the right thing that really pierces the heart and hurts. And I did that. And this person that I was having this debate with just left. They didn't want to talk to me ever again. I actually never... Didn't see that person again for a very, very, very long time. And there was, it was just sad. 
And like literally five minutes after I did it, the thought in my mind was, hey, Ray, you're supposed to be the Christian guy out on the field, yet you were debating over this completely non-Christian thing that didn't matter, and this person is now angry at you. And I didn't say I'm a minister of reconciliation and an ambassador for Christ, but if I am thinking that I'm supposed to be a, a, an ambassador for Christ and an, administ- or an administer of reconciliation, I was not doing my job. I was caring more about things that didn't matter than the things that do. So 10 years later, I think about 10 years later, I was at a party, and this person was at the party. And I remember seeing them, and I didn't recognize them, and then all of a sudden it like clicked. I was like, oh, shoot, that's the person that I offended. And then we like met each other again. <laughs> And uh, shook each other's hand, and then that person remembered, and they're like, oh, aren't you that really religious guy? And I was like, uh, yeah. He's like, didn't you like, like Pat Robertson or something? I was like, R.I.P. Pat. Um, no, so yeah, that happened. That really happened. So then later on at the, at the party, I just was convicted, like, you have to make this right. You have to fix this. <laughs> this isn't good <laughs> that someone thinks that you're still that person. And so, like an hour or so later, I was walking around. I, I looked all over for this person. I couldn't find them until I finally found them. I was like, all right, got to make it happen. And I feel like I was the prodigal son because I'm like, all right, I'm going to say I'm sorry. And I think I know how, all the words that are going to come out, but it'll, it'll be weird. Anyway, we, I ended up walking up to this person. I ended up saying, hey, I am so sorry for whatever I did to you. I don't need to get into all of the minutia, but I'm sorry. And they're like, thank you. Thank you so much. And they were actually happy that I said I was sorry. And I was so surprised because I was expecting just like the opposite. And it worked out. And I was just like, this is great. And it felt very good, actually. I say all of that to say that if we are called to be ministers of reconciliation, we have to be careful with how we treat other people. And that moment in time, I was not careful. I cared about the debate that I was having about whatever issue it was. And it didn't matter what this person thought. And that was so painful after it happened. But the good news is that I was able to talk to them and figure it out. Where that person stands with God and religious people, I don't know. I hope that maybe one day I will. The thing is, is that Christians are called to reconcile because God reconciled us to him. Uh, We give grace because we're given grace. Um, If we want people to see that we're different, we have to actually prove that we're different. We can't just say it. Um, I mean, what would it look like if we actually were a people that cared about this more than we care about most of the things that we do? (laughs) It would be amazing. Um, 
What would it be like if we were people that were quick to reconcile instead of slow? What would it be like if when I did something wrong to you, I just said, I am so sorry. Can we bring this together? And if it has taken a month to do that, great. If it takes six years to do that, great. But it would be awesome. There are so many situations that I've seen where people are not willing to come together again. And Jesus is calling us to do that because it is the right thing to do, but also because Jesus did that for us. So as we uh, go into the rest of the night, be thinking about that. And if you have something that you need to do with someone to reconcile, do it, especially before you do this. I'm going to pray, and then John's going to lead us through the confession part. Um, Heavenly Father, God, thank you for reconciling us to you. Thank you for giving us a ministry of reconciliation that we can bring your word to people who don't know you, and we can love people who don't know you. Help us to do that. Help us in this church to actually want to reconcile with each other and live lives that are sacrificial and um, willing to do the hard thing. In Jesus' name, amen.